Nick, so we had um, we've had Sam on here a couple of times before, and he's always kind of told me you need to get Nick on, and I've I've known you for a while and met you at one of the Alpine shoots as well. And um, in short, I guess that the the way I know you is you're the guy who runs uh, well, among other things, you're the guy who runs Sparrowhawk, which is a uh, range down in the South Island and a pretty damn fine and big one. I haven't got there, but I've just all of every time I hear something about and what you're up to, I'm like I am jealous, basically. So, um, quickly, for people who don't know, what is Sparrowhawk? So, um, Sparrowhawk's settled, uh, set down in Tobacco Fairley um, in South Canterbury here. We've got about 3,500 hectares or 9,000 odd acres um, of land that we can, that we have the freedom to, to play on, um, mm. which has given us, uh, given us a lot of options. We started out with a, um, I guess the whole Sparrowhawk thing started over a disagreement about firearms licensing and the process to get it many years ago. Okay. Um, and yeah, the first range here was actually the Cave Pistol Club um, when it moved out from uh, down in its previous place at Cave. Um, moved up here, developed the range there, and then we sort of got discussing about uh, firearms licensing and how it was. Um, it seemed a bit light, you know, compared to say a motor vehicle license or something where, you know, there was a whole stages and process to go to as opposed to a one evening and a tick and flick test and yep. then provided your characters, test it out, then away it went. So we, um, we through the Lions Club, we've been doing, it must be on 14 odd years now, um, a two day course, um, which is um, a whole day in the classroom where we did all the theory and all of the um, all of the teaching stuff, you know, which covered everything from handling all the actions, cleaning, care, products, um, ballistics, humane um, humane killing, um, shot placement, hunting ethics, um, and a whole heap of the law uh, outside of what's in the test. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second day was all spent on the range where we actually put into practice, you know, everything that was done in the classroom. Um, which is uh, you know how to use slings and center fires and they got nitro to pistols and and yeah lots and lots of benefits in that the local policeman would come up and he'd spend the two days with us as well so he actually got to spend two days with all the potential applicants and meet her in the community um, meet all the young kids and and that gave him some face to face time with them too which is invaluable really yeah uh, over the years and then. Yeah, we went, um, Rip did it first, he went, uh, fulfilled his dream and went and studied on the mount under his, uh, under the Grand Master. He went over to um, Gunsite in Arizona and under, took a class with Jeff Cooper, uh, late Colonel Jeff Cooper. Oh, yes. Yep. Uh, and that's what started the, uh, the teaching run there. He uh, um, got on well over there and they all liked us, obviously. Um and I, they agreed to open their books up. So we run actually um, started a partnership with them with their teaching methodology and their access to their instructors and all that sort of carry on. Um, I got over there the first time was 2006. Um, unfortunately, I missed meeting the man himself. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff passed away just before I got there and I did end up being on the firing party um, at his funeral. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, never got never got the privilege of meeting the man. 
Um, and I guess all up, um, I've been there, I've done probably seven courses there now, and I don't know how many it's done. It was uh, it became became an annual pilgrimage there for a bit, mm. um, which is good, which kept us up to play with all the latest teachings and methodologies um, that they were employing over there. And yeah, and then that's when we branched into the the pistol, the rifle, um, the carbine, um, the shotgun, um, training courses and techniques. Um, around the same time, uh, the military started coming through and doing courses. Um, and we've had various, we had lots and lots of people. I guess all up, there's probably been close to six thousand odd people through our, through our school. Wow, our classes. So, because yes. I guess because I did the, I did an article, oh, two two releases ago on Rod and Rifle about the history of the seven rules of firearm safety, yep. and that talked about because I'm I'm right in thinking it was Jeff Colonel Jeff Cooper that well he's one of the people they credit with sort of the full rules that they have a lot in stateside yeah they um he seems to be it seemed his name popped up a lot when you were looking sort of you know original rules of firearm safety and it was sort of him and 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 his work that that would pop up with those you know never never point your firearm at anything you're not willing to destroy and the firearm is always loaded treated as so you know it's pretty core principle stuff and you'll see them on their on the, on our Facebook page. Actually, it's on mm. the backgrounds. On it's um, yeah. I don't think he'll ever claim that uh, that he that he was um, first coined them, but he certainly uh, he was certainly gathered together all the best bits of information and filled it out what he thought was irrelevant. And um, yeah, probably the first one of the first people to actually speak to those four rules and why mm. uh, and why he chose four. Uh, I think it was because uh, three didn't seem to cover it and five was too many to remember. So, Well, that's it. Like, I, I mean, we've, we've got the seven, but then you look, I mean, I think maybe it's different, different attitude, you know, maybe, maybe not meant to memorize them. I don't know, but Aussie has something like 25 to 30 of these listings. And yeah, if anyone is trying to, trying to memorize them, you know, you're not going to, it's, it's just too much. Yeah. He was um, certainly a Puritan of the art. Was Jeff. Yeah. Um, so he'd, he'd uh, pare things down to the absolute necessities and, and he's quite right. It's, if you do the acid test on any incident or accident I've ever encountered or investigated, mm. you can't actually have an accident without violating one or more of those four rules. Yeah. Yeah. And he'd probably tell me off for that because there's no such thing as an accident. Uh, yeah. Well, that's it. I, I tend to, I tend to, yeah, people talk about accidental discharge. I'm like, no, that's negligence. And, and however, whatever it is, whether it's bad maintenance or the way of handling it or something, it's, it's negligence at some level. It's pretty, I struggle sometimes to think of something that is just pure and absolute accidental, you know? Yeah, I, well, um, that's, but that's the importance of seeking out quality education. Um, mm. if, and it doesn't matter where you go, as long as you go somewhere to get, you know, get your education, and this, um, and the reason being, and we reinforce it here. If you're going to have an accident, um, arrange in the controlled situations and with um, controlled conditions is the best place to make those mistakes. Yeah, yeah. If you have to make a mistake, or if there is going to be one made, under tuition is probably the best place to make it because mm. at least it's safe, it's controlled, and it can be corrected and analysed straight away. 
Yeah. Yeah. The um, yeah, and it doesn't really matter where you get that education. In fact, the more the more um, avenues you take to seek it from different places, because every instructor will teach you something slightly different, mm. and everybody has a different take. So. Have you found like with doing doing the instruction and the teaching for quite a few years that the attitude has changed towards it? I mean, I I suppose framing it as I, I talk to some people where it's, you know, my dad taught me, his dad taught him, there's nothing more I really need to learn. It's all good. By the way, I do this. And then they explain something that just makes your skin crawl. But it's that idea of you can be experienced, but doesn't mean that you're you know, you can be doing something for a long, long time and experience, but doesn't necessarily mean you've been doing it the right way. You found a way to make it work. And, uh, you know, this might be safety. It might literally be the marksmanship fundamentals or anything. But um, It's one of the things that I've found with, um, especially the adult education and, and that father-son relationship um, or the, the parent, parent parental unit relationship <laughs> yeah. is that... Um, You'll only really listen to your parents to a point to really complete your education. You, it, it is important that you are either sent or you seek out other tutors. Mm. Yeah, it's it's really been fascinating watching um, people that come to the range. You know, with the, and we do do family units and that, and you'll see that dynamic change as suddenly the the um, the obstreperous child suddenly realizes that actually. Your man was right when he said things. Perhaps I should listen to a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, but it, that, and that's where the uh, yeah, the, having different people teach is always a um, always a bonus. Mm. Um, and and it is it is noticeable over the years. Um, a lot of that um, knowledge has been lost. Um, whether that's just a, an outcome of the modern the modern age we live in, that people aren't spending as much time in the bush or aren't spending as much time gathering food as a necessity. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's now very much a recreational pastime, uh, yeah. most of us. And, yeah, or a choice. Um, there is a lot of skills that have been lost. And that really became apparent to me when I went overseas and started teaching, or started training under um, his other other establishments with a different culture base behind it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, actually, yeah, there's, there's been a lot lost mm. times. Um, and yeah, and as, and as you probably attest with your courses, it's now, it's not just the shooting aspect and the firearm safety and that when you do the hunts courses or when you do um, taking people to meat hunts, you're actually teaching everything from how to cross creeks, how to climb yep. through fences, how to, uh, um, yeah, and they, everybody knows how to do it because it's in the arms code. It's seen. <laughs> they draw pictures, but to physically do it is another thing. <laughs> there's some uh, there's some great pictures with some very short shorts uh, that <laughs> float around the versions of the arms codes, which is always kind of entertaining. It's like, yeah, you've got to have really short shorts apparently to oh, go hunting. Yeah. But but it's funny, I, and I guess it's different. Like you know, I, as you know, I'm based in Auckland. Auckland is a very um, metropolitan area. You know, there's there's I grew up with kids who had never seen the snow and probably may never do, may never leave Auckland. You know, may, may never go rural, get onto land or anything like that. 
Um, and I actually do with one of the courses when we talk about that section of crossing over a, a fence with a firearm. It's like first question, what do you what do you do? You come across a fence firearm. Everyone looks at me, oh, you unload your rifle. I'm like, no, you look for a gate. And everyone laughs. I'm like, but but I'm being serious. Look for a gate. Look for a sty. Do you know what a sty is? Look for a way of crossing over. Do we understand how to cross over a gate? Meaning, yeah, don't just stand in the middle of the the wire and it's partly in jest and it's a light moment to, you know, just to give some, but at the same time, it's like, yeah. Do have you ever crossed over actual fence and been instructed how not to stretch the crap out of everything? And, you know, there's, there's a, a few, and I only learned, I guess, cause I was generation off the farm that my family uh, come from farming backgrounds. We go visit the extended family. It's all on farm. So we were taught this basic stuff, you know, you you don't stand on a gate on the far end on the away from the hinges you stand it's it's little things but of course yep. it gets and lost closing you know? it when you're done. <laughs> yeah and closing it when you're done yes yes <laughs> so but but you're right i i think that's the thing is it's and it, it's interesting because i look also which you know you're it, it's an, i've always been interested in your idea of that two-day course because you do you teach you're teaching the hunting side of things as well as just the firearms. And I guess the firearms licensing at the moment still sits really focusing quite on that, that firearms safety part of it because of the limited time. But I look to state state side where they have the hunter safety program where it's nearly a week that they need to do it. And a lot of places overseas, you know, it's, that's, that's really fascinating actually um, through the courses and that over the years. So all the um, courses that gun site in the, in the States, they'll average about five days. Mm. And they talk about um, on day three or four, um, they refer to the epiphany. And, oh, yeah. and it is a thing, but it's a, it's a moment in time where suddenly everything just sort of comes together and works. Um, and that usually happens on late day three, early day four on the, on the American courses. And, they, um, and then your last day is really just cementing that moment. Yep. Um, and continuing it. So yeah, the first three days, you know, first day you struggle. The second day you actually feel like you're falling to bits, and you, you know, it's quite humbling. You're like, actually, I didn't know anything. Um, you know, and you shot your group sizes on the pistol courses, for example, are struggling to hit a bloody 18-inch circle at 10 paces. Mm-hmm. Um, and then suddenly, yeah, on that day three, day four, um, on their courses, what we've found here is that we can, and whether it's I think it's something to do with just that culture difference in the Kiwi psyche. Um, it generally happens in two days. It's a lot quicker um, mm. that people reach that moment where everything, you know, they, they have their, they have their uh, ego burst at the start, yep. which melts, dissolves, and then it all comes back together. And usually on that afternoon of the second day, around lunchtime afternoon of the second day, things just gel. Um, and... Yeah, I'm not sure why that is. I think it's um, it is a a vestige of that Kiwi psyche that we just can do and we get mucked in and get the hands in. Mm. Um, and um, whether we're quicker in the uptake or whether I'm not sure, but it just yeah, we've found that two to three days is probably the maximum course length to do in New Zealand um, yep. to achieve the same things that we did in the five day course. Yeah, uh, that said, also. Um, they work on a one to five instructor ratio over there, uh, whereas we work on a one to three. So it might be just that okay. more um, intense um, instructor student ratio that causes that faster learning curve. Mm. So, 
Yeah. Well, it's the, it's the thing. I mean, I find it's like we, we do the we do the firearms licensing, but I tell everyone at the end of it, it's like, but you realize you need to go and learn how to read a map, read a compass, you know, use a compass. You need to do all this other stuff that's we don't we don't cover, but is very important because it won't it might not be a firearms related issue. You might just simply get and more statistically, you're probably more likely to get lost than have an issue with a firearm. That's where search and rescue comes in. You know, trying to pull guys out of pull guys out of the Waitakere Ranges. And I look at it and go, how the hell do you ever get lost in the Waitakere? But at, at, at the same time, I have got lost in the Waitakere Ranges for, you know, we took, I was doing bait lining and with my, myself, my partner, Alice, and we walked off to follow the bait line. We're looking for the next marker for the bait line. Couldn't find it. And I, I sort of just stopped for a moment and I turned around to Alice and said, um, point to the trail. You know, it was probably 20 meters away, but can you point to the, I don't know which way the trail is that I've just walked off. And of course, I've got a compass and got a map and got everything. So we reestablished where we were, but you suddenly realize how quickly you could actually just wander off the side of a trail for a piss. And then suddenly realize you know where the trail is and then walk the wrong way because you're a bloke and you know what the deal is, which way I need to go. And, and you know, it's, yeah. um, it happens. And that's, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of places that I won't go hunting with people unless they've been lost before. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, they know, they know what to do. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it's, it is easy to get that. Um, even, on the, even on home here, thick enough yep. bog, I've been lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Sparrowhawk, I mean, so you, you sort of started, you're doing those, you're doing the, um, the lessons down there. I mean, I guess fast forward now, you're sort of taking over and, and growing it. And I mean, that last couple, I mean, I'm sure it's been a gradual thing. The last couple of years as I've got involved, I've sort of just been aware of sort of the, the longer range stuff you're doing down there and just jealous with the distances you can kind of run down there. Um, and often kind of say to people up here, it's like, if I want a model for a range and how to run the thing, well, Sparrowhawk's probably a pretty good example of it because it's, it's, a pretty unique format, you know? I mean, we've got F-class ranges, we've got Deerstalker ranges, and then you've kind of got Sparrowhawk. I mean, was it always intentional to set up a range in that kind of template or format? Uh, so the, the long range aspect um, is certainly the flavor that I've bought here. It's sort mm. of here. Yeah, it is a passion of mine. Um, and, yeah, like I said, we've got so many uh, so much room and space here that it was um, it was really to build build a range that was unconstrained. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, the, it sort of developed into this based on the style of shooting that we like doing. Um, yeah. And then as we got confident with that, suddenly we got further and further and further away and, yeah, we're currently set up at two kilometres, mm. uh, furthest target. Uh, although I see the world record may have been um, set at about that, so I'm going to have to extend the range <laughs> a bit further. <laughs> uh, we have the ability to go to three kilometres, but um, that's just ridiculous in my mind. I don't have a gun that goes that far yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so, there is always a question of people rocking up and going, oh, we're going to go give that a go. It's like, no, you don't give it a go. That sort of distance is you, you have to work your way. Again, for, sa for safety reasons and just for sanity reasons, you have to work your way out to there and you have to so your gun is shooting close enough at one and two before we're going to let you just take a pot shot out at 3K. That's, that's where it's been. Because uh, I didn't really have a form or an idea in, in mind with the range and as a result we've actually shifted the range a couple of times mm. 
I never recommend and recommend doing for anyone that's thinking of building a range. Try and get it right the first time. Because <laughs> it's a lot of work to shift the whole range. Um, and it's, yeah, so our current range, uh, the closest target's at about 300 odd metres. Uh, okay. 350 is about the closest you can get. Um, we've got some dead ground on the track in the way that um, off of the, a drop off off the firing line, so we can't really get that much closer. Sure. Um, and what's really fascinating on this on the current build, we actually have nowhere to build a hundred meter testing range. Um, the previous one we had a hundred yet hundred meter um, zeroing range. Right. Uh, this one I haven't found a suitable spot for one. Um, hmm. Just the, the lie of the land we set up on a ridge line. And so that forced us to, or forced me to rethink how I set up when people first turn up to the range and they've, they've never shot past two, 300 metres. Yeah. Um, and I had one guy a couple of months ago that um, turned up in his scope. He'd actually put the scope on that morning and he, was gonna, he wanted to zero at first. And then, and, um, so they're like, okay, well, the maths kind of works. So let's. Let's try this, and we'll, we'll do a 500 meter zero for a uh, sorry, 500 meter um, zero for a 100 meter zero. That makes sense. Right. So we yep. set up, and um, yeah, and, and it took three rounds. Actually, um, it was on a 306. Took three rounds, hit him uh, onto the um, 18 inch plate at 460 meters. I think it was. Yep. Um, did the math backward. Set found a zero. 100 meters, dialed that into the scope, and then went from there, and it never skipped a beat. Yeah, it was perfect. And he rang, uh, I was talking to him a couple of months later, and he was off hunting, and he'd never touched a zero from that day. Mm. So the maths still worked. So, yeah. Well, I, I sort of explain. I think this is a thing that a lot of people, if they haven't been exposed or just that extra little bit of knowledge, is that a zero. Like I said, zero, it's just like an arbitrary number, whether it's 100 metres, 100 yards, 105 metres, 107.2, 87.3, 500, whatever it is. If it's a known point, well, then the maths mean that, yeah, we can work it back or we can work it forward. Um, and, that's, uh, and that's the same with people that have, that have never shot past 300, 400 metres. Mm. They, they turn up and our closest permanent target is actually at 700 metres. Right. And, um, and the rest inside are actually all the movables and the mobile stuff. Yeah, and I think it's a bit daunting initially, and then um, but you see, I suppose the the ballistics and the maths is no different. There's just more of it. Yeah, so, yeah, and oh, and, and and gravity's a constant, so it's not like that's the you know. I mean, the the one equalizer, I guess. And I mean, the thing I'm thinking with when you mentioned doing that further out zero, well, how's how's your wind situation down there? Do you you're just allowing for that wind for that? That I, is, I just, that's that is one that's thing popped into my head. I'm just like, whoa, okay. So that is one thing that Sparrowhawk is um, renowned. <laughs> <laughs> is known for. We have uh, we do have some interesting wind conditions. Yeah, uh, and very the weather here can change um, you know, very quickly. We have um, yeah. The, the main saying here is, if it's sunny, take a coat. If it's raining, please yourself. <laughs> <laughs> And if you don't like the weather, wait half an hour. Um, yeah. And yeah, so we've had uh, we've shot matches on the range with 50, 60 kilometer an hour winds. Um, I've actually had to repair the range twice because the wind was blowing the targets off the mounts and wrecking everything. 
Um, so we think we get up to 120, 130k in our wins up on the tops. Um, but on a perfect, on the still days, um, we still get, and we've got most of them mapped now, like we've got the range yeah. sorted out. We get some um, amazing environmental effects on certain targets. Um, there's one target there um, on our wind course that when it's it's good, it's got no problems up till about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, once that ground heats up from about 10 o'clock onwards, you get up to two mils of lift. Right. Uh, and it's only 500 yards away. Yeah. 430 odd metres or whatever it is away. Um, two mil of lift over 400 metres is quite vicious. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's there's um, a couple of targets here with, that we've set up deliberately with multiple wind shears. So it crosses two ridge lines. Mm -hmm. Two wind shears come down the valleys. Um, yeah, it's... We've got most of the map, so once we know roughly what's going on, we can yeah. sort of diagnose. Um, but certainly, first thing in the morning and that last thing in the evening generally is very still. Yeah. Um, and we get um, the most amazing um, vortex trails. You can watch the bullets go out. Um, because the range faces, faces to the west, um, that early morning sun, you even get to see the glint of the base of some bullets yeah. as they rock down the range. So it's actually. You've got the sun behind you on it. Yeah, and it's really easy to spot and call yeah. um, and watch what's going on all the way down range. Um, well, that, that's the thing, and I've only realised as I've, I've used it for a bit, but where I'm sort of doing the setups and, and taking guys out as well up at Balnagown, it's the same thing. The, to the further targets all orientate out that way. So in the mornings, yes, you've kind of got the sun in your face a bit at the 100 because of the way it's set up. You're, you're yep. facing in there, but it's workable. But as soon as you turn around, you're like, we're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to get to see some trails. You're probably going to get to see the, the back of the round, which is great for guys who've never seen it before, you know? And it's like, could you, could you see the impact? No, but could you see that, that weird shimmery traily thing? Go, yeah, I did. Well, there's a vapor trail. That's your, that's your trace. Oh, okay. But uh, same thing. It's, we don't have, we don't have anywhere near the distance. I mean, the furthest we get is sort of 700 meters, but you, you have a, I have a target at 550 and then we walk up the hill backwards basically to get 700. But now we're up on a, on a hill and it's just enough now that the wind, and I say to guys like there's wind out there cause we've shot and you just missed tell me where the wind is because it's all just that stuff that that's sitting all above the the actual ground and the the all the the grass everything below is still you can't feel anything really on your face except it's getting pushed way off the target and you're like you tell me how you're going to be able to measure or judge that without knowing <laughs> yeah and it's there's uh there are tricks and there's ways um as you know there's but it's just remembering them all and yeah yeah and there's and there's even been days uh, especially in the summer when you get those thistle, the thistle seeds running through the air. And you oh, yeah. Like, up in the air. Um, there's been one or two days out there where, uh, you know, you, the wind's blowing on the right-hand side of your face um, and you're busy watching all the thistle seeds, you know, go left or right down range. Like, yeah. That's, <laughs> that shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't be happening that way. Um, and you can sit, I usually spend the first, um, I got the luxury, uh, when we're running the range of it, you're sitting and watching everything. Mm. Um, while everybody's doing the shooting and wondering what's going on, and you can see all the hawks and the and the birds out there doing the circling, and they tell you where the, where the eddies are and the lifts and the yeah and the um, yeah and where the creeks are and the rocks and that you can see the you see the rises and playing with a spotting scope you can find all those vortexes and 
with watching the Shimmer on the Mirage. Mm. Yeah, um, but yeah, it is a lot of it is knowing knowing the range. <laughs> well, it, it, I, I explained to guys, it's like that home field advantage, you know. If you've shot on a bit, you kind of know what's going on. But then, for guys who are out hunting and they're in an area they haven't shot before, and they're shooting across a valley, and and you know, you kind of know valleys are going to create this. And yes, that's going up the valley or down the valley, depending time of day and bits and pieces. But man, yeah. a lot of it is is uh, educated guess. It is. But what is fascinating though is what is you're talking about that confidence and knowing the area of it. So we start the long range, I think we first built three years ago. Two or three years ago. Mm. Um, and we're only just finishing it now, actually. We've finished the target for now, and now we're working on the um, on the firing line itself and the and the club rooms and, and that sort of thing. So it's taken three years just to build the target tree. Mm. The um, what has been noticeable is when we first started out, that was that four, that 400 to four to 700 meter targets were the ones that were getting the hiding. They were, you were forever repainting them and re, refurbishing them and the further away ones were sort of not really touched. Hmm. Three years in with the, and we've got a sort of a reasonable crew that have been here throughout. Um, now probably the most, most painted target I do is the thousand meter in the 1200 in that range. Hmm. Hmm. Um, yeah, they're the ones that soak up the most paint. So the, as everyone's confidence grown, that's where they, their, um, their mindset about what distance is has changed. Yeah. Um, and certainly they're starting where most of their guns are still supersonic. So you're still supersonic at, at 1,000 metres with the 6.5 family, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the 308s just they're still starting at the sort of seven, eight hundred meters to get their first hits in the morning, and then they'll, then they'll start stretching it out. Mm. Um, and a lot of it, um, people are doing more drills now, so they'll be um, rather than just going out and shooting for distance all day. Uh, we've got a few other ranges set up with um, wallabies and various other animals uh, spread in the scrub, and we've got to go and find them and range them, and sort of that hunting scenario side. Yep. Um, we have a wall, um, certainly the PRS style um, features on the range are being used more and more, so the, the little games and the know your limits targets that get smaller and smaller. Um, yeah, I don't think anyone's forgiven me yet for doing the 45 degree cuts in the wall. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was a year and a half ago and there's still people that won't talk about it. <laughs> and, um, yeah it was on I think it was the second individual match we did and uh, yeah I gave him a wall with two inch wide 45 degree grooves yeah so um, to to see through the scope um, you had to have the gun on a 45 degree camp gotcha um, and yeah that played with a few ballistic programs yeah <laughs> Trying to work out the drop of that. I was trying to think. Was it? Is it Traceol? I think there there was one ballistic app that literally allowed you to put in the angle of the gun. Because uh, this is uh, this might have been years ago. They were talking about the guys who were setting up the ninety degrees, and and I think it was just the one app. They're like, you know, you can set your. They can just tell your app to do it for you. Um, funnily enough, and it was um, yeah, never stopped learning there. It was only mm. a couple of weeks ago. Um, I discovered Strelock has that option. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's. To activate it, you've got to hold down the calculate button for three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an Easter egg. Yeah. 
Um, and it popped up and it gives you the option to do 90 degrees either way. Right. Left or right. So, yeah, that was a new one to me. That'd be a good one. Does it default back at some time afterwards or you have to remember to um, send it back? That'd, just, that would be a good way to screw people up who are using that as an app. I'll tell you that. Well, because it, it is an app that I recommend to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, only because it's simple. Um, yeah. And also it gives you that photo of the actual, you can pull up the picture of the reticle with the target drawn on it. Sure. And for the meat hunters, I've used it a fair bit, the guys learning how to shoot deer, because you can bring up a picture of a fellow deer. And right. And where on the carcass the crosshair sits. Yeah. Which is uh, quite good. Um, but yeah, it's... It's one I've used and taught a lot of people how to use, but yeah, it was only last week I discovered that thing. <laughs> I'll put it. I'll put a note down for me to actually go double check that because that's that's, that's kind of cool. Well, hey, learn yeah, something as well. The, it's called the um, heads up display mode. Like it changes its mode. And, um, late. I'm, I am literally writing it down yeah. here, Nick. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I caught up with a guy today, and we were just chat at, at my barber's, and we were just chatting today about he had a, a mate of his out who they bought. I think they just the I don't the exact. They'd got a license recently, got a couple of guns, been out for a shoot, and had gone through something like a thousand rounds in a in a day or a couple of hours. And I said, well, here's here's one to mess with you. I had a, a, a guy out, a client recently with some very nice guns, and we went through about eight rounds over several hours and he's like what i'm like well yeah and yet we both we both learned a lot and it was a great day out and the guy's like that was awesome and it was you know and it's the same thing it's just like instead of volume of fire which we've all probably done at some point go out to the local range for box ammo 20 rounds later you're like don't know really what we achieved we had a bit of fun it was all cool um Whereas I've also had some really good trips I've had where you've sat there for the first half hour just trying to estimate wind and then measure it and estimate ranges before you shoot anything. Shoot one, then go back and chat for a while. Like, well, what happened there? You know, and I don't know. I think both both things can be valid. There's, there's, I'm not arguing that there's not value in app, just trigger time, but I think there's also a lot of value in slowing down and being a little bit more purposeful or mindful as it is cool to call it these days behind that rifle and have a bit more intent so it's good to hear guys are doing drills rather than just seeing how far we can hit one thing with 20 yeah. rounds and i guess it's um like i've recently uh invested in a match in uh, 22 rifle for the 22 matches um i've discovered two wonderful things in that area one is that as a um, range officer on those events it's remarkably pleasant mm. <laughs> yep Yep. It's a quiet match and it is very social and you can actually um, interact with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is, is that, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually, I'm finding it quite a good tool to practice for the big guns with. Because, um, yeah, if, I, if I'm setting up and trying to work everything out and I miss the target five times in a row, I'm not sitting there thinking in the back of my head, well, there's $27 gone. Yeah. <laughs> yep. There's uh, $40 gone. Um, so the 22 is a really good one if they, if they are going to do volume of fire and there are days where you have to to get it out of your system mm. um, that, I found that's been a really good one the, um, the ultimate of, the ultimate of course and uh, the opposite end is um, going with the really big guns where you get very conscious about each round that goes down mm. right did I get my $3 worth out of that shot <laughs> <laughs> did I learn something 
Well, actually, just talking about the 22s reminded me sort of something you mentioned earlier, which was that almost that loss of some of the skills and some of the, the background people had. And it's, I get asked a lot, you know, basically, what's the first gun? What is the first gun I should buy? And, and these days, I, I used to always sort of say, you know, what are you hunting? Rah, rah, rah. And these days, I'm just saying, uh, 22. <laughs> You've never shot before, never done anything before. How about you start with a 22? And that is, that is the universal question um, mm. to the point that on like of our phone licensing course, we actually devoted a couple of hours to that very topic in the classroom phase, you know, what, um, and anybody that's ever um, been seen to have experience with gun is always asked, always asked by somebody else, you know, what should I get, what yep. should I get? Yep. And um, yeah, and, I, and it frustrates a lot of people because you always start, as you as uh, I think we've spoken before, you always start at the opposite end of the spectrum to what they expect. Mm. Sit there and go, well, first of all, what do you want it to do? Yep. And uh, and then you start from there, and then eventually you get around to how much have you got to spend. Yep. So, um, and, yeah, they get cunning by that point, though, because then I get asked back, well, how much should I put aside? <laughs> it becomes this, this, this game of chess. It's like I, the same thing I've said to people, and then at the end of it, I'm like, you do realize I haven't given you an answer. I've just asked a lot of questions and you've answered a lot of questions, but I haven't given you an answer, but are you close to your own answer? And sometimes yeah. they're like, yeah, actually, you know, well, and I've even said to a few people recently because especially up here, Auckland, right? So they're not on a farm. It's not really as tall. It's really just a hunting thing. And a few times I've had guys come out like, what's your first hunting rifle? Like you ever been hunting? I'm like, no, like why don't you go find somewhere or somebody to take you out for a hunt? use their rifle and go for a hunt and see if it's what you actually think it is before you put money into it or just, just go do it. Just go, you know, see what you, if you can just, if you want to actually do this hunting thing. And that's, yeah, and that's one of the, one of the um, part of the course in here is that um, for the, for the hunter one is that we bring a heap of different guns. We've got a few school guns that we have set aside mm. for purpose, different configurations, um, different sizes, um, you know, suppressors, muzzle brakes, all that sort of carry on. Yeah. Uh, and we actually go through and kind of fit people to a rifle because um, everyone's anatomy is different. Um, yep. You know, and it's surprising what some people fit and what they don't. Mm. Uh, the key one, I guess, for any good rifle though is balance, um, and that's something that you don't find in, um, discussed in any of the shops or even with the gunsmiths. Mm. Um, we've got a couple of concept rifles here that we've had custom made from the ground up around that whole purpose of balance, um, which, you know, where the weight's distributed in the rifle and how. And I suppose it's uh, what differentiates, like, your, your really fine guns, like your Holland and Holland and stuff like that. You know, you can pick up a seven, a, an 11-pound Holland and Holland gun, and it feels like a three-pound gun just yep. because of the way it's balanced in the hand. Whereas you can pick up a um, Chinese copy of something that's three pounds and it feels really uncomfortable mm. for some people. The um, and there are exceptions. I've had surprises. I had a um, a a very small um, small probably the wrong word petite female um, that we put through a course uh, a couple of years ago, probably a year and a half ago. Um, and 
she ended up, funnily enough, um, the rifle she liked the most was was a uh, 306, mm. which is not the caliber I had in mind when she walked in the front gate. Mm. Um, but that was what fitted, and she loved it. It was, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, well, it, it's interesting. I'm working with a guy at the moment who's got a um, what would be probably considered a light recoiling caliber, or oh, sorry, cartridge by most of us, but it's been pushing him around. And he's not a small lad. I mean, he's my size, if not a bit bigger. So, and he's just, you see him working through this process of, well, do I need a suppressor? Do I need a muzzle brake? Maybe I need to look at a different cartridge, maybe a different gun. And I'm like, well, hang on a minute. There's, there's one other thing we probably need to look at, and that's how you're actually shooting this thing. Have you ever, has anyone ever gone through, and, and what, what we're discovering, and, and he's going to come out for a day, because I said, just come out. Let's just go out and, and spend some shooting, and, and let's have a look. And he was complaining, I think it was about the eye relief, and because of the eye, he views the eye relief's not right, he's been basically holding this thing off his shoulder to try and get the right eye relief in the, in the gun. And it's like, well... Okay, I think maybe we'll just pull pull it all back to bits, start again, and just see if we can get this thing set up for you. But it, it's an example of somebody who is is a smart dude and is trying to work his way through it, and is potentially was was all but ready to can the gun and just go on to something else. It's like let's let's just let's go back to the beginning and just let's see how you're shouldering the firearm and how you're actually shooting and some real basic stuff and see if we can get it all right because. You know, it's um... and that's and that's the essence of it, really, is that um, and why it's important to go and seek that education from somewhere or go and attend a course somewhere is mm. that 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 um, that other set of eyes. And often, yeah, you do you end up going all the way back to the start. Um, we uh, when I start with uh, doing the one-on-one stuff here with people, I do we start in the gun room and we actually take the rifle apart. I don't care whether it's perfectly set up for them there. But we mm. take it apart and then we put it back together with the right tensions and the right screws and we check that the right screws have got the glues and the, where they should be and, <laughs> and this is not glue where it shouldn't. Um, <laughs> and grease and oil and all sorts of fun things and, and um, birch branches and <laughs> detritus from the last 15 years of use. Um, I had one recently and had half of the, the car wickers underneath the, between the barrel and the stock. I'm like, that might be affecting your accuracy. Oh, I think what they call that is um, custom bedding, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> they, um, it's yeah, and it is interesting. And you pick up a lot of that stuff, like your eye relief on the scopes and and um, incorrected ones, and a lot of them with the cant in their scope. That's a big one. Mm. Um, it's uh, yeah, I've discovered that beware of anyone that's uh, set up or any gun store that's set up uh, install the scope for you. Um, and in particular, if they've used a Tipton gun press. Oh, yeah. Because one of the side effects of that is that that clamps on the bottom of the comb of the stock. So right. it doesn't clamp the, the rifle vertically. Um, it tends to clamp the stock on a slight lean. Um, and the lean matches right-handers. So I'm naturally left-hander. Um, yep. And it's really interesting when you throw, you know, you as a left-hander, I can throw their rifle up to my eye and immediately see there's a cant in it. But mm. because, they, because of the, um, a right-hander, when they throw it, the cant's not immediately apparent. Yep. Um, it's just tilted in that, one, in that one direction. So, yeah, we, we start right back at the start, strip everything down, take them through. And, and that's a good, 
good time to talk to her about cleaning and care and the right parts to clean and what to do and what not to do, um, which isn't taught anywhere no. else. Um, no. Yeah. Well, it, it, that's the thing. And it was, uh, you know, I worked for a brief period of time at a gun store and one of the big chains. And, and you just realize as well that the time limits the guys actually do have. Knowledge aside and everything, it's also just it's transactional. So the people are in and out and getting stuff sorted. And, uh, you know, it's a thing. It's like one, you've got to put that effort in to explain all this other stuff. And it might, this is the thing, sales tip here, it might actually result in extra stuff being sold. You know, you need, have you done this? You need this, you need the cleaning gear. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? But also if you've got another person waiting for you and there's phone calls you need to make and all this stuff, you they just don't have time to go through and do it. They are just, be blunt, they're selling it, moving on, selling it, moving on, because it's, that's what the nature of that, it's a store, it's a retail store, yep. you know? Yep. And they're also, so, I always warn people that, um, just the being a retail outlet, their their main interest is to sell you the slowest moving thing off their shelf too, mm. Mm. <laughs> which is why um, you, get, you know some people turn up with inappropriate calibers or inappropriate guns altogether because they've been talked into it by the by the gun shop and say, okay, um, perhaps we need to try you on a different you know perhaps three hundred <laughs> wind mag, perhaps three hundred wind mag is yeah. probably too big a step up from a twenty two, which was your last yes. Gun. Yeah. Well, it's, a, it's like people are, again, back, what gun should I get? I'm like, well, if it's your first gun, if it's got the word Magnum in the cartridge name anywhere, no. Yeah. <laughs> you well, know, or, or if they say, oh, this is good, you better kill stuff out to 500. No, not your first gun. No, not what you're really well, looking for. Unless you're having bears, I suppose. But yeah. In which case, Saka, Kodiak, you know, something like that, 500 H&H. Hey, go for it. Hey, cool. <laughs> <laughs> how it's a, yeah. yeah how it's a, yeah so but so yeah so i think that's it but then, then again then you've got that for the guys getting into it as well i just warn them or and 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 when you're giving advice if if guy's been shooting for a while and he's now comfortable with his wind mag or his wisdom or whatever it is but he's actually got years behind it people don't realize it's taken you a period of time to get used to it and you tell a new guy to go get a oh, seven mil remag man or kill anything in new zealand all good i think there is a significant amount of guys and i've seen it with trade-ins or even on trade me where there's basically brand new guns being sold and guys go out shoot it a bit get gun shy essentially because they get beaten around and um go oh hunting's not for me and i think that's a crying shame as well and that's the um there's a it's really confusing um, to even for those of us that have been been around a while, just how many calibers there are now, mm. how many how many projectiles, how, and especially when people start asking about reloading and projectiles and what they want to use it for, yes, you really do need to seek the advice to navigate that. Mm. Um, and yeah, I never stop asking questions um, of everything that we do. So every time that every time I encounter something, why, 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 and what else is out there. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm um, not ashamed to say it now, but uh, I've just recently, um, like three months ago, um, departed from my ways at 308. Uh, I, think the, I think the last time that uh, that uh, <laughs> you and I actually face to face spoke was at the match in uh, Rakai, where I was a uh, died in the wall 308 man. <laughs> um, and yeah, after went from it, I took my own advice. Um, and 
you know, when people ask me, you know, what gun should I use and, and start backwards where I want it to do, you know, how do I want to do it? Blah, blah, and, and worked through, settled down, narrowed it down to about four different calibers um, until eventually through really the only reason it won was because of availability of bullets mm. uh, and uh, loaded rounds uh, ended up on 65 Creedmoor. Mm. And for what I want to do it with, yeah, it's, it's not going to say it, um, better than 308 was. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what? a, yeah, it was, it's been a steep learning curve because I've been 308 most of my life. Um, yeah. And now I've got to relearn a whole new set of, um, the whole paradigm shift, you know, the how yeah. far I'm actually engaging. So um, it is my daily carry rifle. Um, on the farm here, we shoot a lot of pests. We, you know, in the, in the vicinity of three thousand wallaby each year, mm. uh, three or four hundred deer, and um, more and more pigs of late, um, mm. forty or fifty pigs a year. So we're, I'm shooting a lot of critters, and there, that, but that I was looking for a gun that would come with me every day, so that when those opportunities presented, and yeah, the um, for the animal weights and the distances that we're shooting at now, partially had to extend the range because the critters are obviously uh, become accustomed to how far we can actually be a danger to them. Yeah. And they learn too, so yeah, you get up the game. And it's been a fascinating changing that caliber as my mainstay caliber. And that, yeah, I felt like I was back in preschool again, learning how to walk. It mm. was, yeah, the, all the, everything had to be relearned and readjusted from the 308 mentality because you know you're suddenly dealing with a cartridge with you know, a third a third less drop and nearly half less wind yep. um, with the same amount of energy so yeah well that, it's the interesting thing is that i was i was talking to um when i interviewed um kaylin from modern day sniper because it was something i asked him about was this notion of the, you know, we have guys now who have got like 20 different guns and they never really master or learn any one of them. And you, you compare that to the guys who do it for a job where they have one, maybe two, maybe three firearms with a very specific combination of projectile and skin because it's issued in a lot of cases and they just learn it inside out. Um, and it's just interesting hearing you because it's it's pretty apparent that the 308 you know inside out and now you're applying that to a 6.5 whereas I think now a lot of guys if you took away the ballistic calculator and the charts and stuff that they had and I would probably be very similar they'd be stuffed they wouldn't know what what they need to do because there's so there's so many different calibers and stuff they're shooting so they just don't get that that familiar with a particular system and then when you, and to go back to the original point, you know, starting out in the market, there's, I mean, mm. just in that 6.5 category, you've got the PRCs, the XCs, the, there's, there's developments all the time. Yeah. Um, then couple that with the fact that there is no, there is no unified naming system for cartridges. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, all, the, all the European ones and the, um, you know, so the 6.5, the 55, is a vastly different beast than a 6.5 Creedmoor or a 6.5 yep. PRC. They're three yep. completely different animals, and yet they've got much the same name. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I think I think it's one thing it's it's that's cool and also it, it it leads to this as well, especially in New Zealand, is we've got so much um, influx from both Europe and America that we've got sort of all of it has come down. Whereas I'm sure if you went to Europe and talked to some of the cartridges that we have, they'd be scratching heads because they're American and vice versa. You get American talk about some of the, the European, the Swedes and stuff, they'd be like, they wouldn't be as familiar. So that's the thing, especially down here. Yeah, you can, there's just so many things. And on top, we seem to have a, quite a lot of a strong reloading culture and almost that sort of that, wild, not, not quite, but sort of that wild cutting. So there's, these guys have got all sorts of things that will turn up. Um, yeah, whereas you guys are wading through it. You, you'll love to hear my um, my Remington, my 700 action, we were, the lefty action we were talking about a while ago as well, is now down with Greg at Custom Guns. And he's putting a uh, six Creedmoor onto it, basically, is where I ended up um, in the end. Um, yep. But same thing. It's, it's a case of really framing down what it is I'm going to use it for. And for my case, North Island is the average range is six, seven, 800 meters. You know, so I was kind of like, six mil a little bit i'm not you know that 1k it'll still do it no problem but i'm not really that worried much beyond that that particular system ever shooting much beyond 1k it'll do it i've got no doubt but it's like yeah but i don't need it to so why build something that could like i said amongst that in that family of project uh family of bullets the uh, the only reason i landed on the creedmoor is because um yeah I mean, we shoot so much so many critters here that have yeah. I don't get the time in the reloading room. I wanted the ability to be able to go somewhere, grab a box, and still be able to shoot it. Um, and that was the so, only reason one. So something I was thinking I was actually going to ask you as well, which is sort of it's a diversion, but I'm sure we'll get back to the, the original subject as such, was um, your, your critters down there in Wallabies. So for most people in the North Island, when you tell them that there's wallabies down there, you tell them, like, the guys used to talk about roos. Oh, we're out shooting roos on the weekend. I'm like, what? you got kangaroos down there. What the, what the hell are you on about? And then they're wallabies. I'm like, you've got wallabies down there. So, so one, guys in the North Island, by the way, there's wallabies and kangaroo. Well, not kangaroo. There's wallabies in the South Island. But two, they're a pest. And the more I talk to, like, yourself and Sam and guys down there, you realize how much. So... You said three thousand in a year. Yes, and that's just off our place. Um, that and is that is that making a dent in them? Is that maintain like what? You know, I hear Sam talk about some of these been out shooting like a couple of hundred in a weekend or something. He's like, I don't think we made a dent. It's just like no. Okay. That, so that uh, that three thousand a year is um, our target to kind of hold even. Right. So yeah, it's. At the moment, it's holding even. Um, mm. You never really feel like you're winning. Mm. Uh, being on the being on the edge of that one because we're on the end of the Hunter Hills here, where the, that edge of that um, their main zone is. Okay. Um, it really doesn't matter how, and we, even if we killed every last one of them on the place within a month or so, there, there's more come over anyway. Yeah. From, uh, from further down the ranges, so yeah, it's just a. It's just a uh, an ongoing thing. But if you don't do it, then it would be un it would actually be unviable to be here. Um, what what's the damage that the wallabies do? Are they eating? So Are they digging stuff up? What officially they're um, they're worth um, the carrying capacity of the farm is measured in stock units. Okay, um, and it's based around. Um, um, the various stages in a life. So you, um, a sheep 
can be so for argument's sake, we'll say a sheep is one stock unit. Sure. It can be a wee bit more or less depending on whether it's in lamb, got lamb at foot, how old it is, that sort of carry on. But for sake of an argument, a sheep is one stock unit. Officially a wallaby is 0.3. So it takes three wallabies to make a stock unit. Right. Um, so I actually think that's wrong um, for the, uh, I think it's probably closer to one-on-one uh, in reality because the wallaby is quite an inefficient um, processor of food. So they eat a lot. They're basically a straight pipe. Right. Uh, the digestive system, they don't have those gut bags that process grafts like um, other ruminants do. So, but officially it's 0.3. So every three wallabies is um, worth a sheep. So every three roos we have is a sheep we can't feed, mm. um, so to speak. So by taking the 3,000 wallabies off a year, that's another 1,000 stock units that we can make, that mm. we're not feeding on the place, that we can use for, for productive stock. Yep. Um, and we actually did it for the select committee hearings um, last year. Uh, did the math on it and to maintain that, it actually what we call a lost opportunity cost. So yep. that would, what it would cost if we didn't do it um, came to about $187,000 a year for our place. Um, so if we didn't do it, that's what it would cost us. Mm. Um, so it's a cost to do it and it's a cost if we didn't do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's where, that's what that actually means to the, to the land here, the effect they have. Um, what, because this, this is the thing I also think about it is I, I talk to you guys and I hear about this and then I go, why have I never heard anything about this on any mainstream media? And before we disappear off into too much, yep. Nick, which I know we could, I'm just, it's more just a statement. It's like, we, it's like this massive pest epidemic we sort of have going on, but we don't hear about it. Um, and I know it doesn't affect us up here in Auckland, so but it does because we're all the same country, you know. You've got, you've got wallabies up there too. There's um, yeah. another population around that Taupo area there. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, they're actually a bit smaller than ours. They're a smaller, um, I think they're Bennett's wallaby. Um, okay. They call it, and it's a it's a slightly smaller um, breed. Yeah. It's a separate, same species, but a different. Yeah. 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 Um. I guess the the biggest thing is that um, they're such efficient breeders. Um, mm. They were they were managed efficiently in the past or effectively um, through the years of the wallaby boards and stuff like that. And then over time, they were all disbanded, and that pest control has been taken up by central government. And without getting into the politics of things, because that's that's another winding path. Yeah. Um, there's a combination of um, poor management um, that is that has led to them expanding. Mm. They're always going to expand because even yep. even when you control stuff, um, they you know nature finds a way. Yep. So it's actually really difficult to eradicate something completely. Um, you put pressure on it in one area, it just moves somewhere else. Yeah, it's been successfully contained. Um, within their containment zone for a number of years. Um, and then, yeah, I've, in the last 10 years, I suppose, there's been a combination of um, yeah, the population expanding. We've had, what, four or five really mild winters in a row now. Mm. Um, 
Wallabies are very efficient breeders. They actually yeah. have two. Yeah. They actually have two wounds. Um, they um, get pregnant again within ten days of giving birth, um, and they actually hold a. Um, they can halt their gestation um, until the one in the pouch gets out, and then ten days later they can give birth. Right. Ten, not, but, so provided the environment's forgiving, i.e., there's enough food and there's enough, uh, and the weather's not knocking them down, um, they'll just keep breeding. <laughs> so yeah, these four. This is about the fourth or fifth winter in a row where it's been relatively mild. Yeah. Um, and because events like the '92 snows and the '96 snows and all those big heavy winters would have had an effect on keeping them. Yep. Keep it not back because they just wouldn't have been breeding and it would have killed off the young ones in the weak one. Um, so, yeah, I guess of late it's more noticeable because we haven't had that natural attrition. Mm. Um, and, yeah, because even to hunt them, uh, they, they say you can do pest control and they're out of the helicopter. It's actually really difficult unless it's in snow. You need about a foot of snow on the ground before that's really effective. Um is that because of tracking them or it's what's finding, the... finding yeah. them? Yeah, I mean, they're the same color as a tussock. And when, yeah. you're do, when you're doing 60 mile an hour going up the hill, you know, looking for brown things amongst brown things. Yeah. Um, yeah, whereas when the snow, they've actually got nowhere to hide. So they're yeah. actually near the spot. And once you've, once you've got them spotted, it's easier to ch- uh, chase them down. <laughs> and, and it's more economic. So when we did the, we did a heap of comparisons again for the select committee um, about the difference between you know, semi-automatic versus bolt action, ground hunting versus um, helicopter hunting. The cheapest way to actually control them is with a helicopter, provided you can keep your kill rate up around three, between 250 and 300 or more an hour. Wow. Um, and that becomes quite hard work if you're the shooter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, yeah, it's a whole new dynamic. dynamic. So you you are obviously pushing for belt fed. <laughs> Area effect, yeah. <laughs> Area effect. Um, oh. Yeah, the funnily enough, the big magazines um, helped at the start, but then for the bulk of the time, you're actually you're just forever loading. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it, losing those additional rounds has it will have an impact. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's. It's still an expensive exercise. It's probably costs three to four dollars per between three and seven dollars a roux. Yeah. Um, for pest control, depending on which which method. Um, yeah. Wow. Oh well, there you go. There's see see how I do this. I do. I I say we're going to be talking about shooting, and then I sneak in like you know biology and and land management and stuff. And people are like, what? I'm just trying to figure out whether I buy a seven milliliter. Creedmoor or a 308. <laughs> anyway, so back to Sparrowhawk. Um, yep. So you've see, you've got, um, I see, I mean, the events and stuff that you've been running down there, you've started increasing the numbers. And I, I think Sam was saying that you, you're doing an open day once a month now? Yes. Because yeah, um, you, uh, you're not, a, you're not a necessarily a traditional range that you're not just open all the time. It's, it's more event-based because you're still on no. a working station. Yeah, we're still a working farm, and of course, a, a long range takes up an awful lot of working farm. Yeah. <laughs> so we, yeah, the first uh, Sunday of each month, we open open the long range. Um, we call it a uh, long range open day. 
uh, or an open long range day, depending on um, who typed up the <laughs> who typed up the booking. Um, and it is it's, it is just that it's just the, the range is open for the day. Um, it's not an open day where you know we take people through and you know and say this is how we do things. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's just no matter. Turn up. Um, the range is open between um, in the winter nine and usually about four thirty-five um, at night. And yeah, turn up. Um, you can. Well, you know, here's, 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 a, here's a way to frame it, I suppose, for a guy who has never was not gone to many ranges because I still feel, feel sometimes there's this little fear of the unknown of what happens when I get to a range, you know, um, what's the, what's the course of action? What's the best way the guy approaches it? You know? Um, so let us know, um, give us a read. <laughs> good start. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, cause the, um, yeah, depending on what's happening, there may not be someone at the front gate to actually meet, um, to meet you through the okay. range is about, um, once you reach the homestead here, the range itself is about 6k um, over the hill and on the farm. So it is a, we recommend four-wheel drive access. Yep. Um, but once you once you get to the yard there, you'll be greeted with a sign with a map showing where everything is um, and a radio on a hook if there's nobody there physically. Um, mm -hmm. You just call up on the radio and we talk you through it. You arrive on the range, you'll be met um, and you'll get the range safety brief you get the layout of the range, you get the code of conduct, that sort of carry on of what's, yeah, everything's explained. Um, and yeah, and then depending on uh, your level of experience, if you want, if you wish to be um, helped through at the very start, then we get you set up and and uh, get you onto the targets and find a spot in the line, show where everything is. Um, if you've experienced and been here before, then it's, have at it. Yep. Um, the targets, there's no real restrictions on our target tree. I've built everything to handle a 50 cal um, or an artillery piece. It's built as strong as you can because the theory was is that I only ever wanted to build it once. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, there is a coached option. So um, that's $150 where we spend uh, half a day um, and we'll coach you from why to do that. You know, that's what we've been talking about go yep. through from where to go um, for the morning and then you get the afternoon to um, uh, to carry on on your own or catch up with everyone else on the range. And that's, I guess that was the primary reason I built the range is not because, so much is because I wanted a range and the ability to shoot whenever I wanted. It's because I wanted all that knowledge that everybody has to come together. Um, we yep. often... We often refer to our shoots, even our competitions, um, as a social event interrupted by gunfire, because um, that's kind of how we design them. It's more about that getting together and you know doing what we're doing, sharing knowledge, because um, nobody's got a monopoly on on knowledge. And but I would like it all to be gathered in one place so it's easy to find. Hmm. Um, and having 15 guys on the range that have you know with all different experiences and different guns. Gives you the ability to talk about different things, try somebody else's setup, see a different suppressor in action, um, see a different reticle. There'll be at least four or five different theories on ballistics at any one moment on the range. Um, <laughs> six or seven different theories on wind. Um, yeah, and it's it's just the ability to listen in and 
and yeah, learn all that. And yep. it is a really um, accepting environment. The, all the guys there are more than willing to help. There is no such thing as a dumb question hmm. the first time. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and the, it's a good group of guys. They'll all, they'll all pitch in and help. So, well, yeah. I. I think that's the thing. I mean, even like I've only been down to the, the one shoot that wasn't a Sparrowhawk, but just generally. And I mean, it's the same throughout the country, really. If you go in there and you've got a, a good attitude, which is basically, hey, I, I just need some help or what, you know, just open, I think is probably the biggest thing. Then there's always going to be someone who's more than happy to, to help out. And, and like you say, share that knowledge because there's so many guys who've got the same attitude in this, this I have found. I think it's been one thing I've learned because as, as I've probably said to you and I say to everybody, I'm still relatively new to all of this, but I've just been lucky to find guys who are so happy to share this information because I want to make sure it gets passed on and not lost. I think is the big thing. Yeah. And yeah, as like I said, it's just making it accessible um, mm. so, that it, so that it can't get lost. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And the competitions are a really good place to do that too. Um, mm. We're running, Actually, the competition circuit in the South Island is getting quite busy. It is. Um, yep. Actually, in negotiations today with a couple of other match directors, um, working out who's going to fit in where and squeeze. <laughs> yep. Really need to figure out a better system. Um, but it's, um, yeah, there's, uh, we've got our, is it next week? Next weekend, we've got our teams match, um, yep. which is uh, done in pairs. And it, it's a PRS-style match where the emphasis is on the teamwork, not so much the shooting. Um, the shooting will get you your scores, but if you can't work as a team and get that communication going and work out the problems, then, uh, then you'll struggle. And um, that's been quite a popular concept. Mm. And yeah, we missed out on the individual matches this year because of the lockdown, um, but they're gonna be um, in December now, uh, instead of our usual May slot. Um, but yeah, there's there's a heap of them. I think the last count, there's seven um, full caliber um, yeah. matches now in the South Island. So um, yeah, you start with uh, King of the Range in February, March is your Vortex Challenge down in Monica. Um, April, you're up to Westport, Reefton area with um, the Alpine. Um, May with our individual one. June is a bit of a break. Um, and July, and then August, we start up again with the um, teams match. And then September, October, yeah, and you're back onto, back onto the Alpine, and, mm. uh, and there's a new one down in the Remarkables, I believe, <laughs> um, starting up. And hopefully we can get another Sparrowhawk one done off-site, because one of the shortfalls of being on a working cattle farm is that we have to stop during calving and lambing. Yep, so that yep. um, September, October uh, is pre, we close the main range um, here for, for anything but booked courses. Um, and they're generally done uh, in the square range. So all the long range stuff stops for those two months. Um, so yeah, we're looking around then to actually do an offsite once, um, probably somewhere down central Otago or somewhere. Um, to the south, give those guys a, an opportunity. Yep. <coughs> or even North Canterbury. Yep. Um, 
yeah, there's a geographic hole there in that Blenheim area. Mm. Um, trouble is finding the land. And that's yeah. the, the big one is finding the space. Tell me about it, Nick. Tell yeah. me about it. <laughs> but well, and, and as as you know, and as we've spoken before, it's the land and land where we can do it properly, and the way yeah. we want to do it, which is properly. Yeah. So, uh, I also see uh, Blair's announced there's another section 22, 22 comp coming up as well. Yep. So uh, as I said, that's a recent um, mm. for end of that world for me. Yeah, the we've held two here now. This um, yep. year's a bit different. We've got two more booked in. Um, so the, how he's running them now is a um, two or a series of events building up to a final. Yeah. Um, and you've got to qualify to make uh, qualify to, at one of the earlier events to get into the, the final in December. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're a lot of fun. Those I really enjoyed those days. They're quiet. There's a you know you're not having to worry about muzzle brakes and. Well, that's we did the the. The, yeah, the 22 comp we did up here for various reasons. We said 22s and they're all, you're all running subsonics. We don't want any supersonics. We don't want any cracks. And, and the same thing, we, we sort of evaluated, we ran it, and there was like hearing protection was pretty much um, an option. Do it, not a bad idea. But yeah, they're all so quiet. That same thing, yeah. you have conversations, ROs, we can just walk well, around the, and do our thing. Yeah, we still insist on the hearing protection on the firing line, but you've only got to go back 15 metres. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, 10 or 15 metres and you're back into having conversations with everybody. Yeah. Uh, whereas on the big gun range, you know, you, you're oh. back 50, 60, yep. 70 metres before it's yep. quiet. Um, and I think it, it's a great way for guys to dip their toes into it because you can, oh. and I've, I've heard you, there's a few people turning up down there with the voodoos, which which is maybe not the most cost effective way of getting into it. But at the same time, there is a lot of cost effective options. It's cheaper, it's cheaper to practice. The ammo is cheaper, you know. I think it's just perceived as a bit more easier to get into rather than these guys shooting long, long ways with it as well. And Sam's going to kill me for saying this, but the fundamentals don't change. <laughs> what is yeah. he going to kill you about that for? Oh, it's a long running joke. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Internalizing the fundamentals. Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. Um, sweet. So uh, people finding out, I mean, uh, you've got the Sparrowhawk site, which is... Sparrowhawk.co.nz, Sparrowhawk? Yep. Um, Sparrowhawk.co.nz. Um, yeah. Most of the uh, variations should make it there. Um, okay. We've, we've bought all of them, so hopefully they're still pointing there. Yeah. Um, the Facebook's probably the, the most up-to-date one. Um, okay. I get onto the website probably um, every month or so um, to update that. Um, but yeah, if you want to know what's happening now, I should check on Facebook. It's the easiest one. It's the best way. Yep. Um, and yeah, we've and as you see on the on the um, the website, it's we started scheduling courses um, early on, but we yeah you end up with quite a lot of issues with that. Mm. If you can get five, if you if see a course you like, get five guys. It takes a minimum of five people to make it sort of financially viable to run a course. Mm -hmm. um, because of our instructor ratio. Um, yeah, you can get five or more guys together, book a time that suits you. Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, and we'll make it work. Cool. So for just, this is where we turn into a travel uh, uh, side of things. Where's the closest major city or where's the airport? Like how guys? Um, so we're about <laughs> two and a half hours from Christchurch. 
Okay. Um, yep. And forty minutes from tomorrow, depending on okay. who's driving. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're we're nestled in the um, in that junction, you know, the um, between um, about halfway between Christchurch and Queenstown, I suppose. Yeah. With that Tikapo turn off there. Um, or we're um, 14 and a half minutes from the Fairly Bakehouse pie shop. So, <laughs> easiest way to remember that one. Easy. Yeah, okay, cool. It's not counting uh, the time you spend standing in line. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 